that the Bible is very clear, particularly the New Testament, without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Now, we are made holy by the blood of Jesus, but if our life is not surrendered to Jesus, then we will not see the Lord. We have to be surrendered to what Jesus did on the cross. We have to appropriate what Jesus did on the cross to our life. That's what makes us holy. It's not about praying a sinner's prayer and then just living how I like for the rest of the week, thinking, well, God should now bless me. God should now give me a breakthrough. God should now heal my body. God should now restore my relationships, my family relationships, my marriage relationship, my friendships, whatever it might be. If we are uh, just simply praying a sinner's prayer, we, we've totally lost what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about us being washed clean simply by our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. But the ongoing breakthroughs that God wants to bring into our life can only come as we surrender to what he did on the cross. The Bible says without holiness, we will not see the Lord. So if we are praying a sinner's prayer, but living an unholy life, now, the word holy is not just about doing right things. It's about living for God. It's about being separated for his use, being separated for divine purpose. That's what holy means. In the Old Testament, we looked last week at the various utensils in the temple that were set apart and ceremonially cleansed for divine use. In the New Testament, it's more exciting. We are set apart as individuals and we are ceremonially cleansed by the blood of Jesus for divine use. So they didn't just cleanse those utensils and then toss them in the back room. They cleansed them and used them for divine purpose and they remained clean. And if they somehow became contaminated, they had to be re-cleaned and ready for divine use. It's the same with our, our lives. If we are daily seeking to walk with Jesus, if we are daily deepening our relationship with the Lord, we are, we are positioning ourselves for the Lord to be manifested in our life. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. And I shared last Sunday, I want to see the Lord in my marriage. I want to see the Lord in my ministry. I want to see the Lord in the church that he's called me to lead. I want to see the Lord in my finances. But without holiness, without a commitment to living for him and allowing him to adjust my life and hone my life and cleanse my life and polish my life and restore my life without a surrendered attitude and a surrendered posture, I will not see the Lord. And we can pray until we are blue in the face. If we are not aligning our life and we're just doing what we want to do and not thinking twice about what God may require of us, we come to church on Sunday simply looking for heaven to give us something, we will live life disappointed. I was, I was thinking yesterday afternoon, uh, and I, I believe it was the Holy Spirit. It just reminded me of a couple of things. And one of them was the, one of the very first illustrations that I used in one of my very first sermons, if you like. And I've still got many of my old sermon notes from way back in the early 80s when I was in Bible college and then later into ministry. And sometimes I get them out and I look at them and I think, how did I preach that stuff? It was so shallow and just lacking insight. But I was green. And, but I remember one of the first illustrations that I used and I was preaching to a youth group. And, and it, it was a story that I felt the Lord gave me to really reinforce the importance of us staying the course and following Jesus and surrendering to Jesus and, and not having one foot in the world and one foot in the church, wanting the best of both worlds, if you like, and, 
And the illustration he gave me was an experience that I had many years ago when I was driving my car at night and I was following another car and we were in like suburbia. And as we're driving along, I remember just seeing all of a sudden a cat dart out from the side of the road into the path of the car in front of me. And the cat ran and I thought, it's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. And then all of a sudden it made it. It got to the other side of the road and it stopped. It was safe. It was there. It had arrived at its safety zone. But in a moment of hesitation, in a moment of whatever went through the cat's head, it suddenly turned and ran straight back under the wheels of the car. And you know what? I've seen that happen more than once. An animal will run across the path of a car. It gets across the other side and something spooks it. And it obviously doesn't understand what's happening in the atmosphere around it or the environment around it. And it'll prop and it'll turn and run back. But it runs back into the path of death and pain and destruction. And I I shared with that youth group that, that so often... Christians who who have crossed the line and stepped into the presence of God and have have surrendered their life to him and have started the journey of living for him and allowing him to use them have somehow in a moment of indecision, in a moment of temptation, in a moment of doubt or a moment of disappointment, they've turned back. And some people get the opportunity to turn back again, but others don't. Sometimes in that moment of indecision, you can lose everything. You know, I I was reminded again yesterday of a young man that was saved around about the same time as me, was coming to the youth group here in our church, was coming to church on a Sunday around the same time as I started to come to church. And this young man had come out of a serious drug background and he struggled a lot more than what I did to walk out of the world and walk away from my old life and for him to walk away from his old life. He struggled more than I did and there were times where he would drop back and then he'd come back again, then he'd slip back and then he'd come back again. And, but eventually he got, he got a significant breakthrough and it was while uh, I was now off in Bible college, Margot and I had become married and I just seemed to have moved forward whereas he had this bouncing back and forth, back into the world, back into the kingdom, back into the world. But then he got this significant breakthrough and something turned in his life and he began to move forward in leaps and bounds. He began to bear fruit. He ended up, he went to Bible college. But there came a point, something happened in his life where, where he, he did what the cat did. And in a moment of indecision, in a moment of doubt, in a moment of weakness, he decided he wanted to go back and taste what he had left behind. But this time there was no coming back. I remember being in a meeting with this young man when he was moving forward and, and progressing and doing so well. I remember specifically hearing a prophetic word spoken over his life as he was pulled out of the, the congregation and brought forward and, and there were people laying hands on him and I can still hear the man prophesying over his life and declaring the destiny that God had for him and the ministry that God had called and gifted him to do. And, and he spoke into his future and I, I, I learned something When this young man never came back, I learned something that prophecy only ever speaks to our potential. It's not a done deal. And I think sometimes we can become flippant and we can say, well, it's been prophesied over me, so therefore it'll happen. 
Not all the will of God will happen. You know, it's, it's God's will that none should perish. But how many already have? So God's will isn't always fulfilled. And when God prophesies destiny, he prophesies your future. He prophesies his plan, his purpose for you. What has been written in your book before time ever began, according to Psalm 139 that, that John I referenced this morning. You know, all the days of my life have been allotted to me and everything that he planned for my life was written in his book for me. But it doesn't mean it will automatically happen. My decisions and my choices are critical and key to the fulfillment of my destiny. This young man, in a moment of indecision or doubt or disappointment, whatever happened to him, he turned back and he went back and tasted the drug scene again and they found him dead in a motel room. Only in his late 20s. He's buried in Sandgate Cemetery today. I know where his grave is. I've been there. I've seen it. But in a moment of indecision, and I think, Lord, I, I, I don't want to waver. I want to stay the course of holiness because without holiness, I will not see the Lord. Without holiness, I will not experience the manifest presence of God that brings fullness of joy, that brings healing, that brings breakthrough. Without holiness, and holiness is simply my posture to say, Jesus, I belong to you. Help me today to live for you. Help me today to align my attitudes to your word. Help me today to align my motives, to align my heart, to align my values with your values. Lord, search me, know me, try me, see if there's anything in me that offends you and cleanse me and heal me and restore me and enable me to walk that path that you've planned for my life. I don't want to be like the cat and turn back in a moment of doubt or disappointment or indecision. And I was reminded yesterday afternoon of the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 18, I think it is. Elijah's on Mount Carmel and he, he, uh, he, his ministry was under the most wicked king ever to reign in Israel, King Ahab. The Bible says that he did more, King Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than any other king before him. He was a wicked king. He was a, a king that just uh, loved the power, the position, the, the accolades, the glory, the, 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 the rewards, the benefits that came with it. He didn't have a servant heart. He didn't have a desire to extend kingdom purpose. He was in it for what he could get out of it. And the Bible actually goes out of its way to say he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any other king in history. I would hate that to be written about me. But that's gone down in history about King Ahab. And Elijah confronts Ahab. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but he's on, he's on the mountain and he confronts Ahab and the false prophets that were representing Ahab and his kingdom and all the people that had been negatively influenced to, to move away from the purpose of God and just have the appearance of godliness because they still had an element of their faith mixed in with a lot of the cultural things of the nations that surrounded them. And they had become so watered down. They'd become so lukewarm, not hot, not cold, but lukewarm and so disappointed were they in the heart of God. And Elijah stands up and he confronts Ahab. He confronts Jezebel. He confronts the prophets of Baal. But he says this interesting thing. He turns to the people of God. He turns to those that have just you know, lost their way or turned back or allowed themselves to become watered down in their faith. He turns to them and he says these words. How long will you waver between two opinions? He said, if God is God, then follow him. If he's not, 
then keep doing what you're doing. He was challenging what they knew to be the truth. They knew God was true. They knew God was real. They'd seen his hand of power. They'd seen and experienced his blessing. The the hand of God all over the nation. They knew the stories that their forefathers had told them. So Elijah says, if God is God, surrender your life and follow him. Give him your best. Why are you wavering? You see, that's what... Jesus said when he spoke to the church in Laodicea, you're lukewarm and I hate lukewarmness. I hate a foot in one camp and a foot in the other. I'd rather you hot or I'd rather you cold. Make your choice. I can work with that. But don't be a religious, lukewarm churchgoer that has the appearance bright and shiny on the outside. But on the inside, Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. I don't want to be like that. And he's challenging them. Don't waver between two opinions. Make a stand. And if you make a stand for God and you allow yourself to be separated for his purpose and you become holy, he can work with you in that. It's a moment, a decision, a moment's decision to say, God, I surrender. I turn from my old way. I surrender. And Elijah said, how long will you waver? Then I woke up early this morning. It was about 3 a.m. So I've been thinking about the cat. And a cat lover, believe me, that was a horrible experience for me to watch this cat splattered under the wheel of this car. And it was catastrophic for me. It was very catastrophic. <laughs> That's not the title of my message. Well, maybe it could be a title. Catastrophic. I'm thinking about my first sermon illustration, and then I feel the Holy Spirit remind me of, of that fellow that got saved around the same time as me that was a little bit like the cat turned back in a moment of indecision. And then, then I felt the Lord speak to me about Elijah on Mount Carmel and don't waver. Make a stand. Make a strong, strong stand. But then I woke up in the early hours of this morning and I had the story of Joab, Asahel, and Abner in my heart. And I thought, Lord, what, 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 what is this about? What, what are you reminding me of these things for? Why is this on my heart? So I got up this morning and I began to read again the story of Joab, Asahel, and Abner. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. And Joab, Asahel, and Abner, it's a fascinating story. You see, when David had been anointed as king, he didn't become king straight away. Saul did not let go of the throne. Then Saul died. You would have thought that at that point, David would have automatically assumed the throne, but it didn't happen that way. There were still a lot of people in Israel that were strong supporters of Saul and his dynasty. And so people quickly maneuvered politically and put one of Saul's sons in the throne in his place. But the people are now rising saying, well, no, David is actually the king. He's the one that's been anointed. We know the word of God. We know the prophecies that have been spoken. We know the plan and purpose of God through the prophet Samuel. David is the one. But it took a long process for Saul's dynasty to become weaker and weaker and eventually diminish and for David's kingdom to grow stronger and stronger. And so in that interim period, there was a lot of tension in the camp amongst the people of God. 
And the tension was between Israel and the various tribes that were aligned in that camp and the camp of Judah where David had been made king. So we had a divided kingdom. Like you often get divided churches. It's the same people of God, but there's a division in the camp. And that, that was the political atmosphere of this particular day. And on one occasion, Joab, who was the commanding officer of David's armies, is out with his men. And Abner, who's the commanding officer of the dynasty of Saul's armies, are out with his men and they cross paths with each other. They are brothers. Get this. They are brothers. This is not two enemy camps. They are brothers who had become enemies. But this is within the nation. These, both of these groups came out of the loins of Abraham. And they cross paths and they begin to taunt each other. And there's this, this mockery and sledging, we call it today. And, and eventually Abner says to Joab, how about you pick 12 of your strongest warriors? I'll pick 12 of mine and let's have a bit of competition today. We'll sit back and enjoy the show. Well, they did and it got out of hand as it often does. And people began to die. And then it broke into an all-out fight. And it got so savage that, that people fell, lost their lives in the process, brothers fighting against brothers. And eventually it settled. Abner goes his way. But this guy, Asahel, who was Joab's younger brother, he was a young upstart, probably a little bit arrogant, maybe thought he would prove himself to his older brother and those around him. Maybe he thought, if I do something significant, I'll get a promotion. I, we're not really told what happened, but Abner leaves with his men and Asahel ducks off and starts to follow him and he's taunting him from one side of a valley to the other. And Abner turns and says, Asahel, I want you to turn and go back. Go home. I don't want to have to kill you today because you, we're brothers. This shouldn't even be happening. This is really offending the heart of God. And, and, and Asahel wouldn't turn back. He just kept going. He kept going. He kept taunting. And eventually he got close enough to Abner to grab him by the scruff of the shirt. And he said to him, he said, Asahel, I told you, go home. I don't want to have to kill you. I can't do that to your brother Joab because we are brothers. And this was a tense, tense moment. But Asahel wouldn't let it go. Like a dog with a bone, he just kept taunting and taunting and taunting. And in a moment of frustration and anger, Abner grabs the butt end of his spear and lunges it into Asahel's stomach, trying to just wind him, knock him over, leave him there. So now, now when you pick yourself up, go home. But it must have been sharper than he had thought. And it penetrated and went straight through. And Asahel died. Abner and his men went off home and left him there. Word comes back to Joab that Abner has killed your brother. Now, it wasn't murder. It was manslaughter. It wasn't intentional. He didn't want to kill him. He's just trying to distract him. He's trying to ward him off. He's trying to give him a reason to give up and go home, boy. I've told you three times. Joab gets angry and he starts chasing after Abner, wanting to avenge his brother's blood. Eventually it settles. Abner calls out to him, this is not godly, it's not good. Joab decides to back off and he backs off. David's kingdom's rising in the meantime. Saul's kingdom is getting weaker and weaker. Something happens in Saul's camp and Abner becomes offended. He then turns on his own people and says, I'm going to go and help David rise in his kingdom. He's the guy anyway. So this is Abner now, the one that just killed Joab's brother. Joab is David's commanding officer. So Abner heads across to David's kingdom and arranges to meet with the king. Joab's out of town on a raiding party. 
So Abner sits with David and says, you're the man. I believe it's prophetically declared. I'm coming to support you. I'm going to turn Saul's dynasty over to you. And I will influence that to happen. It was a political maneuver. So he says, you go, you start the process. David was okay with it, prepared a banquet for Abner, and off he went. Joab arrives soon after Abner leaves and finds out that Abner had just been there and made this alliance with the king. Joab is ticked. He is really ticked. He goes to David and he says, what is it you have done? This guy is a spy. He's got an ulterior motive, a hidden agenda. He's going to bring your kingdom down. He's trying to dupe you into, you think this is what his intentions are, but there are other intentions. And David says, no, I'm going to work with this. I feel good about it. I feel right. David was a man who inquired of the Lord. You can understand that. You read that so often throughout the history of David's life. You read time and time again, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. When David didn't know what to do, he inquired of the Lord and he ran with the peace of God in his heart. So I believe the hand of God's involved in this, but Joab is really ticked off. So he then, without David knowing, sends messengers to catch up with Abner and say, look, we need you to come back. There's a couple of matters that we need to clarify. So he's being deceitful now. So Abner comes back. Now watch this. He arrives at the gate of the city of Hebron. He's committed manslaughter. He's killed Asahel, Joab's younger brother. The significance of that is the law said that Joab had every right to kill Abner. Joab had every right to avenge his brother's blood. That was the old covenant. It was the law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, God could see into the future and could see that sometimes manslaughter happened accidentally, without intent, neglect, whatever happened, people would do something that cost someone else their life, but it wasn't malicious. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, premeditated murder, which is what murder is. It's premeditated. It was accidental, but there still needs, it still needs to be dealt with in a judicial way. So, so the Lord said, because you can avenge their blood, I, he said to Moses, I want you to set up when you move into the land, six cities of refuge and the cities of refuge will be places where people can claim asylum if they've accidentally killed somebody they they need to get as quickly as they can to one of the nearest cities of refuge there were three on the east side of the jordan three on the west side of the jordan you get there as quick as you can and you will be granted asylum nobody can touch you once you're inside the city of refuge when you're inside the city of refuge then the judicial processes will unfold you will be tried you will be uh, cross-examined, you will be found either guilty or not guilty. If you're found guilty, you'll be dealt with accordingly. If you're found not guilty, then you will be released to go back to your land. But you have to stay in the city of refuge. In fact, you had to stay there till the high priest died. So if he was a young man, you were there for a long time. Abner has killed Asahel. He's arriving back in Hebron. Guess what Hebron was? A city of refuge. It was one of the six cities set up as a city of refuge. He's outside the gate. And Joab, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 3, I think it is, pulls him aside at the gate, beckoning him, leading him to believe he wanted to just talk to him. But when they got off to the side of the road, Joab put a knife in his belly and he died at the spot. He was outside the gate of the city of refuge. 
He was outside the place of safety. He was outside the place of asylum. Let me tell you something, folks. Surrender to Jesus is the safest place you can be. Surrender to his word is the safest place you can be. Surrender to his purpose is the safest place you can be. But then David gets word of the fact Abner has just been killed by Joab. And you know something? David could do nothing about it because Joab had the right to take his life. If he had just taken two more steps inside the gate, Joab would not have been able to touch him. And if Joab had touched him, Joab would have been executed as a result. But he stayed outside the gate. He stayed on the wrong side of the, of the protective line. He stayed in the wrong place. And then King David gets wind of it and he comes down to the gate and there's Abner dead in a pool of blood on the side of the road, only meters from the safety zone. And David says these words, Abner died like a fool dies. His hands were not bound. His feet were not put in chains. He's been taken by the hands of men. Abner died like a fool dies. I, I honestly believe the Lord is calling our church to a whole new level of holiness where we step across the line into the safety zone of belonging to Jesus. We step across the line into the safety zone of being fully surrendered to his will for my life, his word over my life, his plan for my life. We're like Mary. We would all say, Lord, be it done to me according to your word. That we would be absolutely and totally surrendered. I'm going to run out of time here, but that's okay. I'll continue this another time. But I, let, let me say this to you, that, that God... God is a, a God of his word. When he declares something, when he decrees something, he sticks by it. In Numbers chapter 23 and verse uh, 19, we read, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is true to his word. If he says something, he will do it. And we have to understand, remember, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. Oh, Jesus, help me with this. I just don't want to get into something and then run out of time. He, he was in his hometown of Nazareth and he stood up to read the scroll and he declared that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then all the people that knew him began to criticize. They began to say, he, he came from here. He's one of, I went to school with him. I know his sisters. That, that, that was the conversation that went down. And they began to downplay and disrespect what Jesus was declaring about himself. And then Jesus said those famous words, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown where everybody knows him. Everybody knows his weaknesses, his flaws, his, his mistakes, his background, his, his dirty laundry. Everybody knows there'll be no honor there. But when, when he's away from his hometown, that's when a prophet truly receives honor. And that's when a prophet truly functions as a prophet. But it goes on also and says this, Jesus could do no great miracle in that town because of that attitude. And the Bible says there was so much unbelief and their attitude towards Jesus being one of their local boys, who, who, who does he think he is? He grew up here. We know him. And you know, their attitude fed unbelief in their heart. And Jesus could do no great miracle. Jesus could do no. He had no choice. He was hamstrung. 
He could not give them breakthrough. He could not give them healing. He could not give them restoration. He could not move on their behalf. He could not. He was bound. He couldn't say, well, I'm God. I can do whatever I like. There are some things God cannot do. And one of those key things is he cannot go against his word. And his word tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I wonder whether God said, I wish I hadn't said that. Because if I just had a little bit of unbelief, I could work with it. But I've already gone and said without faith, it's impossible to please me. He's already put that in place. It's already a decree. It's already a plan. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must believe that. Or we won't move the hand of God or move the heart of God. And so when we... When we play both sides of the world and we, uh, both sides of the fence where we've got one foot in the church and one foot in the world and we're trying to you know, put on the Christian facade and look like we're godly and, and, and go to church on Sunday but we, we don't really change our attitudes or our thinking. It's a manifestation of unbelief. But when we determine, I will become holy, I will surrender my life to the Lord, I will surrender to the purpose of God, it's an attitude of faith. It's declaring, God, I trust you. God, I want you. God, I believe you've got the best in store for my life. That's what holiness is. It's surrender to his word, his purpose, his plan, his future for your life. But if we play both sides of the fence, it's an expression of unbelief. I need this because I don't know that God will give it to me. I need to still stay involved there. I need, I've got, I need those friends because I might not get it over here. I don't know that God is that faithful. It's an expression of unbelief and you hamstring God from moving in your life. We block him from doing any great thing in our life if we are not surrendered. And I think that's why the church is so powerless today. Is because there is so much of the world in the church and I believe the Lord's calling us up out of the world. You know, I read a statistic just this week. There is as much divorce in the church today as what there is in the world. We are very, very similar to the world. And I think it's because we're wavering between two opinions. We've got one foot in the world, one foot in the church. There is as, there is as much pornography addiction in the church as there is in the world. This has been statistically done through surveys and assessments. There is as much substance abuse and addiction to things that are harmful to our bodies in the church is what there is in the world. And I think Jesus is calling his church to rise up and say, I'm drawing a line in the sand and I will trust you and I will believe you and I will surrender to you and I will submit my life to you and become a holy vessel that I believe you can use. You know, I, I haven't, you haven't got this. Oh yeah, I think you have got this one, Ben. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6 to 7. Let me, let me wrap up with this. I'm probably going to have to come back and visit this. Have you got it there, Ben? Did I give you that one? Zechariah, talking about Jeshua, the priest. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Jeshua and said this. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority. I, I want to stop right there. You will be given authority over my temple and over my courts. You will be given authority in the heavenly realm. Why, why does the church lack so much authority? Is it because we're not carefully walking in his ways? 
Is it because we're not carefully surrendering to his will, to his heart, to his lordship, to his purpose? Is it because we're not surrendering and allowing him to bring holiness into our life and cleanse us as vessels that are fit for the master's use? This is the verse you don't have, Ben, and I've got it here in my notes and I didn't give it to you. But this is what Paul says to Timothy. In a wealthy home, Timothy, some utensils are made of gold and silver and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, Timothy, you will be a special utensil for honourable use. God is looking for a people through which he can flow, through which he can move, through which he can empower to touch a hurting and a broken world who's looking for something different to what they've got out there. And we've got the same in here as what they've got out there. And it shouldn't be that way. I, it, well, I, it might be good preaching, but it's not, it's not, it's not favourite preaching. It's not popular preaching I am absolutely convinced that if the church would align with the heart of God and be willing to be used by God and forsake the things that so often bind us and distract us and steal from us and rob us the authority of God would come into our life and every devil in hell would bow before you Every depressive cloud that the devil rolls into your life would, would dissolve in an instant. If we would be surrendered. Can you put it back up, Ben? Leave it up there for me. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, that's holiness. That's holiness. It's not about being perfect. Remember I said that. If you stuff up, we have an advocate with the Father who comes and on our behalf will cleanse us if we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. I sin every day, folks. I miss the mark every day. But every day I'm saying, Jesus, help me to get over this. Jesus, help me get through this. Jesus, help me overcome this. And I believe, and I don't say this with pride or arrogance, but I believe that's what sustains me through the storms that we've faced in our lives so far. It's because of a willingness to say, God, I acknowledge this is sin. Wash me afresh in your blood. I want to be careful to walk in your ways. That's what will give me authority in the heavenly realm. That's what will cause the devil to know my name. When, when the book of Acts, when the, the sons of Sceva came and said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, the devils look at him and said, who are you? Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? Oh, I'm getting passionate, I know. I, I believe with all my heart if every one of us as individuals would just say, Jesus, I surrender afresh. I surrender afresh to you. A fresh impartation of godly, divine kingdom authority will become if you are careful to walk in my ways. And, and what does it say? Walk in my ways and carefully serve me. You'll be given authority. That's holiness. Lord's calling us to a whole new level of authority, but it'll only come through holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart, open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, that we might get a revelation of what you're teaching in your word. Father, you don't want any of us to be like that cat and turn back 
and in a moment of indecision or doubt or disappointment, run beneath the wheels of the enemy. Lord, you want us to keep crossing that road, keep moving forward, keep plowing new ground, keep pioneering new territory. You want us, Lord, to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of you. You want us to experience greater levels of authority over the kingdom of darkness who seeks to bring us down. But every time he pulls the rug from under us, we get back up again. Lord, it can only come through holiness because without holiness, we cannot see you. We cannot see your manifested power, your presence. Lord, I ask that you would empower all of us with a fresh ability to rise up and say, I'm following Jesus. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. I will live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name, help us, I pray. Just while your eyes are closed, your head's about this morning. I know there's a couple of faces here that I don't know. You're unfamiliar to me. Maybe you're visiting from out of town. You've come from somewhere else. But maybe, maybe you're in the meeting today and you're thinking, oh, I've got so many challenges in my life. The wheels have fallen off so many aspects of my life. Maybe it's just one aspect, but it's a significant aspect. Maybe you're struggling with addiction. Maybe you're struggling with, with stuff that just constantly brings depression into your life. I want to challenge you today. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that God's plan and purpose for your life is good. If you've come into the meeting today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, and you're listening to what I'm saying today and you think, wow, I, I don't want to hang around outside the city of refuge. And, uh, you know, our God is our refuge and strength. He is our city of refuge today. I don't want to play around outside the door. I want, I want to be in boots and all that. I want to live in the kingdom. I, I, when I walk out of here today, I don't want to walk back into the world atmosphere. I want to walk in the kingdom, the kingdom's atmosphere. And I want his presence around every aspect of my life, my marriage, my kids, my business, my work, my home, my unemployment situation, my sickness, my health situation. I want the Lord in my life. If, if you're here today and you've never invited Jesus into your life, I want to tell you something. You open the door and let him come in. He will begin a process of change in you that you... You'll just keep crossing that road and you'll keep plowing new ground. You won't turn back under the wheels of the devil. If that's you today, while eyes are closed and heads are bowed, I want you to raise your hand right where you're sitting. I'll see it. I'll acknowledge it. You can put it down again. I'll simply know to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to know, okay, there's someone here. We can pray for you. And we're going to give you something to take home today that will help you start a relationship with this God I've been talking about today. There's someone in these closing moments. You don't know Jesus. You've never invited him into your life. You'd like to do that right now. Raise your hand right where you're sitting. And I'll know to pray for you today. Thank you. Over to the side there. You can put your hand down. Someone else. I want to join this young lady and say, I, I want to open my heart to Jesus. I want him to come in like a flood and set up a standard against the enemy. Thank you. You can put your hand down too. Thank you. Someone else this morning. Want to join these two people? Taste and see that God is good. I can't show you that God is good. I can tell you God is good. I can tell you what he's done in my life. But only you can taste for yourself and see. Is there someone else in these closing moments? 
Father, I thank you today for these two precious people that are saying yes to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would hover around them right now as the seed of your word is planted in the soil of their heart. I pray that you would protect that seed. I pray, Lord, that you would nurture that seed and that they would come to a place of greater understanding of your plan and your purpose for their life. Lord, I pray you right now let your presence become so real in their, not just in their life right this moment, but in their life when they walk out of this door. Your presence, let it become so real as they go back into their schoolyard, their workplace, their, their, their university, their, whatever it is they do. Let your presence, Lord, become so strong that they will just know something good has happened to me today. And that, Lord, you would lead them to a fuller and greater understanding of who you are and your plan for their life. Let's pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning and I surrender my life to you. I invite you into my heart. Take the throne of my heart and begin to lead me forward. Wash me clean of all my sin. In Jesus' name, I crown you my Lord and receive you as my Savior.